1: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com ACAST. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable
0: for all listeners. For six months... Wisconsin fugitive and media sensation, Lori Bembenick, had sat in a Thunder Bay jail, while lawyers and politicians on both sides of the border argued her fate. The Milwaukee District Attorney's Office wanted her extradited back to the U.S. to serve out her prison term for murder, and they would probably be adding a few more years for her prison escape. But fortunately for Lori, She had one of Canada's top immigration lawyers defending her refugee status claim, and he wasn't prepared to send her back without a fight. Frank Morocco knew Lori Bembenek was not only innocent of the crime she had spent eight years in prison for, but she had been framed by a corrupt police department. Morocco believed that the U.S. justice system had failed Lori Bembenek, but he was going to make sure Canada's immigration system did not. Even if that meant retrying her criminal case in front of an immigration hearing. But while Lori's fate remained in legal, political limbo, she remained in prison. Transferred to the Metro West Detention Center in South Etobicoke, Lori's infamy was attracting unwanted attention from other inmates and Lori feared for her life. She wanted to stay in Canada, but she needed to get out of prison. But Lori also wanted to clear her name, and that might mean returning to Milwaukee to face another trial. From where she was currently sitting, the stakes were very high either way. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true crime story of a woman who became one of the most celebrated fugitives in American history. Her prison escape made headlines around the world. But then her luck and her fleeting freedom ran out in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Suddenly, the small northern city was the focus of a media frenzy, the likes of which they had never seen before or since. And Canada was soon a key player In a cross border tug of war that would become a pivotal moment in the tragic life story of this famous woman. Was she a convicted killer fleeing justice? Or a political refugee in flight from persecution in her homeland? This is Woman on the Run, the Lori Bembenick story. Episode 3 Fight or Flight.
1: Run run. Life imprisonment in Wisconsin State Prisons. For it is the sentence of this court that you Laurencia Bembenek are to serve a term of life imprisonment in the Wisconsin State
0: Prisons. The former Milwaukee cop and her boyfriend spent three months on the run before a tip led police to their Ontario hideout. Did you kill Christine Schultz. That was the critical question Lori Benbenek was asked repeatedly during a polygraph, according to the man who had administered the test. John McClinton, a polygraph examiner with the Canadian Department of National Defense, was testifying at Lori's immigration hearing. The polygraph tests had been conducted at the Thunder Bay Jail two months after Benbenek had been arrested. McClinton testified that he conducted the testing over a two-day period, and based on the results, he was convinced that Lori Bembenek was not guilty of the crime she had been convicted of. Laurencia Bembenick was telling the truth when she denied shooting Christine Schultz, he said. The following day, the Milwaukee Sentinel newspaper ran with the headline, Bembenek isn't a killer, says Canadian polygraph expert. Immigration lawyer Frank Morocco and his team had requested the polygraph and the experts' testimony as part of the new evidence they were presenting during Lori's immigration hearing in Mississauga, Ontario. In February 1991, Morocco had filed a 91-page brief with Canadian immigration officials outlining why Laurie Bembenek should not be extradited back to the United States. The brief outlined the entire criminal case against her and focused on the circumstantial evidence that had been used to convict her. Now he was picking apart each piece of evidence and witness testimony presented at her trial. The polygraph tests were strong new evidence, but the next evidence presented by Morocco and his team was even more compelling. On June 6, 1991, Morocco presented two affidavits by leading forensic pathologists that both claimed that the gun used to convict Bembenek was not the murder weapon used to kill Christine Schultz. Whoever murdered Christine had pressed the gun deep into her upper back while pulling the trigger. And the muzzle of the gun had left a perfect donut-shaped impression on her skin. Both experts had studied in large photos of the bullet wound and the muzzle imprints caused by the gunshot. They had also studied enlarged photos of the barrel of the alleged murder weapon and the police-issued handgun carried by the victim's ex-husband on the night of her murder. Dr. Werner Spitz was a forensic pathologist and the chief medical examiner in Detroit, Michigan. He had worked on a number of high-profile cases including the investigations into the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. In his sworn affidavit regarding the gun that had been presented at Lori Bemenik's trial, he said it could not have caused the injuries observed on the body of the victim. Dr. Spitz went on to state that he believed the real murder weapon was consistent with the police-issued handgun carried by Fred Schultz a gun that was never tested or examined. The second affidavit was signed by Dr. John Hilsden-Smith, a leading pathologist with the Ontario Forensic Sciences Centre. He also confirmed that the gun used to convict Bembenek could not have caused the wound that killed Christine Schultz. His report said the impression left by the rim of the muzzle on Christine's back was 6.25 millimeters. While the muzzle on the 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver allegedly used in the murder was only 2.37 millimeters thick. That is a discrepancy of 264%, he said. This gun evidence and expert testimony was extremely powerful it seemed to collapse the very foundations of Lori's conviction, since at the time of her trial, the jurors said it was the gun evidence more than anything else that had made the case against her. If the gun isn't the gun, then Laurentia Bembenick can't possibly be the murderer, said John Callahan, one of Lori's Canadian lawyers. Next to testify at Lori's immigration hearing was one of her most loyal supporters. Private investigator Ira Robbins, who had been working on the case for over six years, stated that his client had been framed by the Milwaukee Police Department and part of the cover-up had involved tampering with evidence. One of the key pieces of evidence that placed Lori Bibenik at the scene of the crime in May of 1981 were strands of bleached blonde hair. But according to the original pathologist, the blonde hair was not on or near the body at the time of the autopsy, but later appeared in an envelope that the pathologist had sealed. In a letter written to Robbins in 1983 after Laurie's conviction, the medical examiner, Dr. Elaine Samuels, wrote, that no such hairs accompanied the body into the Milwaukee City Morgue, and no such hairs were recovered by me during the autopsy. She stated that there was no reasonable explanation for the mysterious appearance of blonde hair strands in the envelope she herself had sealed and sent to the crime lab. This, she concluded, leads me to believe that something may be amiss in the investigation into Christine Schultz's death. Dr. Samuels added that further investigation was required. A subsequent review of the logbooks at the crime lab indicated that the envelope with the strands of blonde hair had been signed out by a police officer and then returned to the lab prior to Lori's trial. Ira Robbins went on to discuss the evidence given by Lori's ex-husband Fred Schultz during the 1982 trial. Schultz, who had been granted immunity from prosecution in exchange for his testimony, testified that Lori was at their apartment alone where his off-duty revolver was kept. He was the only person that connected Lori to the gun that was determined to be the murder weapon at the time. But it was also discovered that Fred Schultz had been under internal investigation by the Milwaukee Police Department before he testified against Lori. According to the documents Ira Robbins had uncovered, Schultz had lied about carrying his service revolver on the job. And he had also violated Wisconsin state laws by not waiting a mandatory six months after his divorce to remarry. But neither the existence of the report nor its contents had been disclosed at Lori's trial. Fred Schultz had resigned from the Milwaukee Police Force on December 10, 1981, one day after he had been confronted with the report. Bembenik's immigration lawyer, Frank Morocco, said withholding the results of the internal police investigation from the murder trial had denied jurors the opportunity to assess evidence that would have been crucial to assessing Schultz's credibility. Lori's ex-husband was a liar, and the jury should have been made aware. As her refugee hearing continued, Lori Bembenek remained at the Metro West Detention Center, a grim holding facility with over 600 inmates. Toronto Star reporter Jack Lakey had interviewed Laurie while she was in the Thunder Bay jail, and he was continuing to cover her immigration hearing in Mississauga. But after a number of his news stories were published, a regular correspondence developed between Jack and the American fugitive.
1: I had given her my phone number uh, after I'd spoken to her in Thunder Bay. And so she got into the habit of calling me occasionally later in the evening because she just wanted someone to talk to, you know, that was not not another uh, inmate or somebody that was on her legal team. And she couldn't call home. Her parents were still alive at that time, and they were elderly. The process of uh, trying to pay for lawyers for her and trying to help her appeal the conviction and this sort of thing had pretty much broken them. But she couldn't just call them. And I don't think they could call her and they just say, here, put Laurie on the phone. So she didn't have anyone to talk to. So she would call me uh, at home in the evenings here in Toronto. And and uh, we'd have many conversations uh, over a period of time. My wife wasn't very fussy about it, but we would have many conversations. Oh, we had many conversations over a period of time. She was very well informed. She was quite intelligent. She was right up on the local news. Here in uh, in Ontario, because I'm guessing that's the newspaper she got to read, and she was uh, she there was a hopeful air about her at the time because there was you know a, a sense that the immigration process might just work for her, and so um, so anyway they were interesting conversations in the sense that uh, they provided some insight into how how she was. Uh, responding to the immigration process, what she thought of Canada. I do recall she told me she thought Canada was a great place and that she wouldn't mind being here permanently, but who wouldn't?
0: Lori felt good about Canada and the Canadians who were helping her. But when asked about her former employer, the Milwaukee Police Force, Lori didn't have anything positive to say. She maintained that she had been set up by the police department to prevent her from testifying at a grand jury hearing that was investigating allegations that the police department was misusing affirmative action funding. Bembenek was to be a key witness, but was charged with the murder of Christine Schultz shortly before she was to testify.
1: They would stoop to nothing to uh, get back at people that they felt had crossed them and this was always a key argument for why, for those who believed Lori was framed, that she had been a born in the side of the Milwaukee Police Department from the day she joined it as a cadet, and uh, they were quite comfortable with the uh, with the framing of her as as the uh, suspect in uh, Christine Schultz's murder.
0: Without Bembenek, federal U.S. Attorney James Morrison lacked the evidence needed to seek indictments against senior police officials, and the case had been dropped. And according to Ben Benick, more recent events in Milwaukee proved that there were serious failings within the city's police department.
1: Police removed boxes and boxes of body parts, evidence of what appears to be a psychopathic mass murder. Authorities also took out a barrel of what they think is acid. Police are reluctant to reveal exactly how many victims there might be, but knowledgeable investigators say it could be more than a half a dozen. Neighbors say the man was strange and that there was an odor coming from the apartment. However, no one suspected the accumulation of dead bodies.
0: Nicknamed the Milwaukee Monster, Jeffrey Dahmer had finally been caught and had admitted to at least 17 murders of young boys and men. But months earlier it was discovered that the Milwaukee police had investigated an incident involving Dahmer. Three officers had responded to a 911 call about a naked teenager sitting on a street corner. The boy was dazed and bleeding, but Jeffrey Dahmer claimed that the boy was his 19-year-old boyfriend who was drunk. The police escorted the boy back to Dahmer's apartment where they noted a foul smell. They wrote it up as a domestic dispute. Dahmer later admitted to killing the drugged boy as soon as the police left. He was 14 years old. What kind of police would give a boy back to a strange man, Bembenek asked. Bembenek also said she believed there were racial undertones at play in the Dahmer case, noting that the boy returned to him was of Asian descent and at least nine of his other victims were black. I've been trying to tell people for the past 10 years that this is a bad police force, said Membenick. But nobody would listen. Nobody believed me, she said. Reporter Jack Lakey recalls speaking to the Milwaukee District Attorney about the Jeffrey Dahmer case.
1: The District Attorney that was involved, that was a point man in the prosecution of Jeffrey Dahmer, was also the point man in, in Lori Benbenick's case. And his name was Robert Donahue. And Donahue was a guy I ended up interviewing a couple times. And Donahue, at one point, I asked him about Jeffrey Dahmer. And I, I will never forget what he told me. He said, nicest guy you could ever meet.
0: On August 9th, 1991... Lori Bembenek finally began her testimony in front of the Canadian Immigration Tribunal. Did you kill Christine Schultz? asked her immigration lawyer, Frank Morocco. Absolutely not. No, she replied. She told immigration adjudicator Carmen DiCarlo that she believed the Milwaukee Police Department had framed her. She recalled how she had been harassed from the day she joined the force. I was subjected to tremendous amounts of gender-specific verbal abuse and humiliation, she said. Lori believed that the harassment was meant to discourage her from completing her training. But she ultimately graduated sixth in her class in June 1980. Women officers and black officers were dropping like flies, said Lori while white male officers were getting away with everything. Lori knew they had come up with a feeble excuse to fire her from the police force, saying she had smoked marijuana. But even 10 years after being sacked, Lori said she still wasn't quite sure why she had been framed for murder. I think they thought I knew more than I did, she said, referring to the photos of the 1980 party That showed Milwaukee police officers drinking and posing nude in a public park. There was widespread corruption and fraud, and perhaps I was getting too close to something bigger, she added. While her immigration hearing continued, Lori finally got some good news. Eleven months after her arrest in Thunder Bay, she was finally released on bail thanks to an old friend. Louis Cabiz, the owner of the Columbia Grill and Tavern in Thunder Bay, had put up $10,000 of his own money to get Lori out of prison. He then provided an additional $10,000 bond to ensure that Lori would show up at her next refugee hearing the following month. "'I will never believe in a million years "'that this girl did what they said she did,' Cabiz told reporters." I'd hire her again tomorrow, he claimed. But, despite her former boss's support and financial assurances, Lori's liberation from a jail cell was short-lived. Less than 24 hours later, Lori was back behind bars at the Metro West Detention Center. It turned out that as soon as she had been released, the state of Wisconsin applied to have her arrested and extradited back to Milwaukee. A move that Frank Morocco said was initiated to block a favorable decision in her refugee case. So what was going to take precedence? Lori's refugee claim or Wisconsin's extradition request? Canadian government officials claimed her rearrest was mandatory under the terms of the Canadian US Extradition Treaty. But immigration lawyer Frank Morocco said it was unprecedented in his experience for an extradition hearing to begin while a refugee hearing was already taking place. He believed that the state of Wisconsin was concerned that the testimony presented at Lori's refugee hearing appeared to support her claim of innocence and she would be granted refugee status in Canada.
1: It's a matter of course that when a fugitive from U.S. justice is pinched here in Canada, you send them back, and you don't fool around. Mm -hmm. You know, it was only because of these very unique circumstances and the work done by Ira Robbins to call into question the case used to convict her, that Frank Morocco was able to mount an immigration challenge to sending her back and on the basis that she may qualify for refugee status as a persecuted person. So... Yeah, I mean, this, is, this was probably uncomfortable for the Canadian government and very uncomfortable for, I won't say the U.S. government, but certainly the, uh, the people that had a, uh, that had a stake in, in Milwaukee.
0: But while lawyers and immigration officials on both sides of the border continue to debate and defend their positions, support for Lori's plight continued to grow in Canada media coverage was pro-Ben Benick, with Toronto Life magazine calling her trial in Wisconsin a sick joke. And the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation aired a documentary on her story that supported the idea that she had been framed for murder. Within days of the program, Laurie had received hundreds of letters of support from all over Canada. This lady has been wronged. And it's time the Canadians do what Canadians are known for and stand up for what is right," said an outspoken fan who had organized a free Ben Benic support network.
1: Essentially, I think that her looks and her, her sensational backstory in terms of how this all played out made this so much more of an interesting, compelling news story. In the early 90s, uh, than it would otherwise have been, and that's that. That I can tell you for sure. I mean, one of the reasons uh, that the Toronto Star, took a, where I work, took a, 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 such a close interest in it, is because it was it was big news all over North America, and a lot of that I believe had to do with Laurie Benbenik's good looks.
0: And support continued to grow for Lori back in her hometown of Milwaukee as local news continued to cover her Canadian immigration hearing. Friends held rallies and organized bake sales and craft sales to raise money to help pay for her defense. But while Lori's friends and family continued to support her claim of innocence and her quest for freedom, she remained locked up. The Metro West Detention Centre in Toronto was far worse than any prison she had ever been in. Used primarily as a holding facility, inmates weren't allowed to have any personal items in their cells, and inmates were routinely strip searched. Lori later wrote about sometimes being strip searched three times a day, often in front of male prison guards. Her brief taste of freedom One night out of that dehumanizing, filthy prison had given her hope. But since being sent back, she didn't know how much more she could endure. The months dragged on.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
2: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect
0: to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On Christmas Day, 1991, Virginia and Joseph Benbenek drove to the Metro West Detention Center to visit their daughter. They weren't allowed to bring her a gift, but they wanted to be there for Lori. The Bimbenics had stood by Lori through everything and had even mortgaged their house twice to pay her legal fees. But as 1991 was drawing to a close, they could tell she was losing her will to fight. She had been caught up in a legal political battle between the U.S. and Canada for over a year now and something had to give. And finally something did. As new evidence had come to light during her refugee hearing in Canada, officials in Milwaukee had opened a John Doe investigation, a proceeding comparable to a one-person grand jury hearing. Circuit Court Judge William Hayes was conducting the investigation, and he was specifically looking into the possibility of police misconduct and whether any evidence had been tampered with during the investigation into Christine Schultz's murder. Lori was hopeful that the John Doe investigation would result in a new trial. But regardless, she knew that she would ultimately have to return to Wisconsin if she had any hopes of clearing her name.
1: Over most of 1991, there had been substantial evidence presented to support the idea that she had been wrongly convicted. However, as, uh, as the as uh, the proceedings played out, it became more and more obvious that it probably wasn't going to work, and that she would ultimately be sent back. But meanwhile, because Frank had been, uh, as I say, relitigating her her uh, conviction and the trial, her Milwaukee trial here in these immigration hearings, he poked more and more and more and more holes in. Milwaukee's case against Lori. Meanwhile, all this is getting getting reported in in Milwaukee and in, in the U.S., particularly the Milwaukee-Chicago area, where it was of the most interest. And so there came a point, I believe in the fall of 1991, where the Milwaukee District Attorney's Office began, they, they basically buckled under the pressure and began a new investigation into her conviction and this went on over a period of months but everybody knew that it was driven by stuff that they were able up until then to just ignore because other than this community newspaper in Milwaukee there wasn't a whole lot of play for the evidence that the the growing evidence that showed she might have been wrongly convicted. Frank's immigration uh, proceedings here in, in Toronto allowed, as I say, those the, the basis of the conviction and the evidence to be called into serious question. So basically they, they, they knuckled under in Milwaukee in the fall and they started to uh, re-examine the evidence.
0: So in February of 1992, Lori decided to drop her Canadian refugee claim and the appeal of her extradition order. Her fate, whatever it happened to be, would have to be decided in Wisconsin. On April 20th, 1992, Lori Bembenek was escorted out of the Metro West Detention Center in South Etobicoke and placed into the back of an unmarked police car. Wearing a black dress adorned with handcuffs and leg irons, She was driven to Toronto's Pearson Airport, where she was handed over to U.S. federal marshals and put on a plane to Milwaukee. After 18 months in Canada, Lori Bembenek was resigned to returning to the U.S. Even though she had no guarantee she would be granted a new trial. I'd be perfectly happy staying in Canada for the rest of my life, she told Jack Lakey the Toronto Star reporter she had gotten to know. But I have to go back and try to clear my name. After returning to Wisconsin, Lori was immediately shipped back to the Tai Correctional Facility and, as predicted, was placed in solitary confinement. Four months later, on August 21st, 1992... Milwaukee Judge William Hayes announced his findings in the John Doe investigation he had overseen. Judge Hayes had conducted a 10-month review of the case to determine whether evidence tampering or perjury had led to Bembenek's 1982 murder conviction. He ruled that no police conspiracy had existed to frame Lori Bembenek, but stated that the investigation that led to her murder conviction was marred by serious mistakes. He stated that a conspiracy would have had to have been so vast that it could not have been successfully orchestrated. But Judge Hayes did conclude that the police had mishandled evidence and failed to quickly seize Fred Schultz's off duty revolver, which was the gun investigators said been Benick used in the 1981 slain. He concluded that the mistakes made were a result of inadequate procedures and bad judgment instead of intentional wrongdoing. Based on Hayes' independent judicial review and the evidence that had been presented during the Canadian refugee hearing, the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office made Lori Bimbenick an offer. Her original conviction on first-degree murder charges would be vacated if Lori agreed to plead no contest to second-degree murder. Lori took the deal. In December 1992, a judge reduced Lori Bembenek's life sentence to 20 years and she was immediately released for time served. Lori had spent seven months in solitary confinement after her return from Canada. Asked why she had pleaded guilty to a crime she didn't commit, Lori explained that her parents were both in failing health and her only priority was spending time with them.
1: I never got the sense that she wanted to go through a second complex and lengthy trial. And when, when, when freedom was there for the signing.
0: Lori finally getting out of prison was big news and the Toronto Star newspaper sent Jack Lakey to Milwaukee to cover the story.
1: They had a sort of a free-for-all news press conference in downtown Chicago, and where she spoke to the media, and, and I mean, they were all there. It was an amazing spectacle.
0: And here I was,
1: this guy that always had sort of like this inside track with her, and now I'm just pushed back to the back of the room because there's all these guys with TV cameras and, and, and uh, a current affair and all these. Gossip TV shows and, and all the the, the, the uh, news networks, and uh, and so anyway, it was quite a spectacle, and, and I recall how they, some of them chased her in a car because she was she was uh, released, and they they drove her down to Chicago, and they, they news crews were running up alongside her at seventy miles an hour on the interstate going down from Milwaukee to Chicago, and they filming her along the way. And anyway, it was. As I say, it was quite a spectacle, but that was the last time I saw her. And once she was released, I basically stopped following her, uh, her situation because she, at that point, was blending back into the community.
0: But Lori's reintegration back into society and a normal life after 10 years in prison was not an easy transition. She struggled with alcohol addiction and post-traumatic stress disorder. Following her release from prison, Lori wrote her autobiography called Woman on Trial. And the following year, Tatum O'Neill starred as Bembenek in a film based on her story. In 1996, Lori moved to Vancouver, Washington to be closer to her parents who had retired there. She eventually remarried, but her addictions continued to plague her. Even though she was no longer in a prison cell, she still felt imprisoned by a conviction hanging over her head. She still wanted to clear her name. In August of 2002, ten years after she had pleaded to a lesser charge of second-degree murder, Lori Benbenick filed a motion requesting the retesting of genetic material still on file with the Milwaukee police. With advances in DNA since the murder 20 years earlier, Lori and her legal team were certain new evidence would emerge. Fifteen items were tested, including bed covers from the crime scene, a t-shirt worn by Christine Schultz, and a bullet taken from her body. The results showed two different samples of male DNA on the bedsheets, and male and female DNA on the bullet. In addition, unidentified male DNA on a vaginal swab indicated a possible sexual assault. And to further support that claim, a former assistant medical examiner who had testified at Lori's original trial changed her medical opinion on the murder of Christine Schultz. In a sworn affidavit, She was now saying that she believed the murder was sexually motivated and had been committed by a male assailant. None of Lori Benbenek's DNA was found on any of the items tested. And while Benbenek's lawyer, Mary Waller, said the results could prove her client was indeed innocent, the assistant district attorney for Milwaukee maintained that the results were inconclusive and they were not willing to overturn her second-degree murder conviction. Lori had lost yet another battle in her fight to clear her name. But this time, she had lost something else. in In wanting to get the new DNA tests done... Lori had made a deal with the Dr. Phil show. They would pay for the testing if she agreed to be on the show when the results were revealed. Lori agreed, but like many other times in her life, things did not go as planned. Lori was seriously injured while in Los Angeles waiting to tape the show. When the show's handlers confined her to an apartment, she suffered a panic attack and jumped out of a second-story window. She broke her leg so badly it had to be amputated below the knee. Another tragedy for a woman who had already endured so much. For over three decades, Lori Bembenek maintained her innocence and fought relentlessly to have her name cleared for the murder of Christine Schultz. And for the Toronto Star newsman who got to know her while she was in Canada, he believed that her story came down to a series of unfortunate decisions.
1: She hadn't gone into the police business, none of this would have played out because the the, uh, subtext of what went on in Milwaukee was that she became a pain in the ass to the Milwaukee Police Department And that they were looking to get rid of her. And that she had particularly that she had uh, she had called into question that I think they had gotten some money for affirmative action hiring or maybe hiring of women or something like that, which wasn't a big deal back in the in the early 80s. And that uh, they had directed the money to places where it was not intended. And she raised hell about that, too. And that really got under their skin.
0: And while Lori's association with the Milwaukee Police Department ultimately altered the course of her life, Jack Lakey believes someone else got away with murder.
1: Fred Schultz had reason to strongly, just like, if not hate, his ex-wife. Who has motive other than Fred Schultz? He had the means to do it, and he had better reasons. I mean, I, I never heard of anyone else that had any reason to kill Christine Schultz.
0: Fred Schultz always maintained his innocence in the death of his ex wife Christine and continued to say that he believed Lori had pulled the trigger that fateful night back in 1981. And after that night, Lori's life was never the same. Framed and convicted for a murder she didn't commit, Lori became a media sensation and a tabloid headline Run, Bambi, Run. She was the pretty, bleached blonde, ex-cop and playboy club waitress railroaded by a corrupt police department and abandoned by the men she had loved and trusted in her life. Maybe her only luck was escaping to Canada and having strangers in another country believe in her and fight for her freedom. Jack Lakey reflects on the Canadian chapter of Lori's life story.
1: I firmly believe that if she had not got Frank Morocco as her lawyer, she could have got 101 other lawyers on, you know, on uh, on the public dime, and they might not have been nearly as farsighted, nearly as effective, and basically they would have facilitated uh, the uh, immigration order from Minister McDougall. So I think it was just a, uh, just, just a stroke of luck that she was represented by Frank because Frank understood that. I think he understood that as a plan B, if I'm not able to get her refugee status here in Canada, I can sure as hell poke holes and call into question so many of the things on which her conviction was uh, based that uh, it puts him in a very uncomfortable spot in Milwaukee. And that was probably the most effective thing Frank done, and that probably is the biggest and best thing that happened for Lori when she got to Canada.
0: In 2008, Lori filed a petition with the United States Supreme Court, seeking a reversal of her second-degree murder conviction. Her petition was denied. Lori was never really able to escape the ghosts of her past. For years, she continued to struggle with addictions and physical ailments. On the last page of her 1992 autobiography, she wrote Going on is possible. Survival is possible. Even happiness is possible, I hope. But I'm not at all sure about forgiveness. Laurencia, Lori, Bambi Bembenick died on November 20, 2010 at a hospice in Portland, Oregon. She was 52 years old. In 2019, Lori's longtime friend and lawyer, Mary Wooler, filed a petition for a posthumous pardon with Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers. She has continued to argue that new ballistic tests on the original gun and DNA evidence prove Lori Bimbenek's innocence. Lori Bimbenek was not a murderer, Roller said. She was wrongfully convicted and a pardon would be the right thing to do. But to this day, the state of Wisconsin has not pardoned Lori Bimbenek.
1: I think it's the sort of thing that they would just like to forget, move on from. And I suspect that more than any other reason is why there's never been a pardon. And I think uh, there never will be. And uh, and don't forget, too, especially now that she's dead, you don't have uh, anyone in the, the, the victim, if you like, to agitate for it. So I don't think that will ever happen. And uh, and I don't find that surprising, actually. I mean, it, it might be disappointing to some people. But that's the way the world works. It's a nasty world.
0: Lori Bembenek maintained her innocence until her dying day. It's just not right. It's not right what they did.
1: Woman on the run, the Lori Bambenic Story is written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. A special thank you to Jack Lakey. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. Visit us at Storyhunterpodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you enjoyed this story and others on Story Hunter Podcasts, please subscribe on Apple or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review.
0: We appreciate you listening.